being forced kind of into my, out of my will um, into some things that, that I was kind of taught that if that was taken from me, that it would just stay my whole life. There was no getting back. And um, I was now staying in ruins and here. And, and honestly, it was just such a traumatic thing, but it also was just so tied to this uh, perspective that I had on God. It was like, you know, I had this traumatic thing that no one should ever have happen to them, but then it was also tied to this um, identity thing as a Christian. Like, I, I thought, like, man, if this is given up, then I've just lost anything good that I have to give in my life. Um, and so I, I went on this journey that was in eighth grade, and I just went on this journey of absolute um, devastation and self-worth for identity. Pretty much anyone who wanted anything from me or wanted to identify me as something, I was kind of like a chameleon. Like in any crowd that I was in, I would just blend into what they were doing and whatever they wanted of me, I would get. Um, because I had no self-worth or identity in anything else. So the world just kind of dictated what that would be for me. And um, in high school, there were just a series of events that I just felt like were seeds that God planted, just little moments of hope that my life would look different. But I just, you know, continued down that path and just kept digging a hole for myself um, in, in mistakes that I had made, in abusive relationships, in, um, you know, partying, just whatever it was. I was digging the hole, digging the hole, digging the hole. But ultimately, like, just digging out any worth that I had for myself. Just kind of hit a spot where um, late high school, senior high school, I just was so devastated by who I had become, and really had this sense, like when I was a little girl, when I think about who I was, and I see my little girl Gaven now, um, I was such like, a rose-colored glasses girl. I just believed the best about everyone and everything. I truly, everyone has, every girl has a different sort of personality, but for me. I really was, the world is so magical, it's so beautiful. And so just the sort of robbery of those years and, and what I both agreed to and didn't agree to uh, really robbed so much of my innocence and so much of my value. And so my senior year of high school just kind of hit a rock bottom spot. I had kept all these things hidden. So for like five years, just never told anyone what happened to me. and never had told anyone, I'm so dishonest, I just Definitely lied to my friends when they would ask me if I was okay or what was going on in my life. I just never shared the truth. I was never honest. And um, it just hit a spot where I was at, at the rock bottom, um, you know, a series of events as always, um, and windings and, and um, friendships just falling out, fraying out, and it just hit a rock bottom spot. And I remember right, like, kind of in my bedroom one night. I am just depressed. I'm, I'm, I'm the lowest that I've ever been. I just felt even embarrassed and ashamed to like go to school and see people that now knew some of my dirty laundry going on. And um, yeah, I just hit this spot where I needed, I needed the Lord. I was desperate. And so um, my senior year, I walk into an English class kind of in that space. Um, and actually, my, my best friend the night before, it was a crazy, divine kind of encounter moment, but the guy that um, had sexually abused me, he had never told anyone, and I had never told anyone, and he had actually just had this like kind of crazy encounter with Jesus in college, and he told one person, and just like repented to them, 
and that one person happened to be my best friend at the time's boyf- like a cousin of her boyfriend. And so literally, if there was like two people in the world that could know, it was like my best friend's connection and, and this guy. And so he confessed to someone who then told her, and she just sat me down that night that I said was like kind of the lowest night of my life. And she just said like, how could we have been friends for all these years and you just never told me that this happened to you? And so I often say that like my story was like the woman caught in adultery. You know that story in the scriptures? Like she didn't want to get caught. Like someone drug her out into the streets. I didn't want to get caught. I didn't want to share my dirty laundry. But I just got drugged out into the street and, and sort of exposed. And that's really how I felt, was just totally exposed. And I felt like the enemy really came in that moment with shame in, in such a significant way that I felt like I couldn't go to school, I couldn't face my friends, I couldn't um, face the reality of what I had made of my life. And I know my mom was like, okay, we're almost at Christmas break, you just need to know. Get just get to school. Take your take your last finals, and then you're gonna have Christmas break. You can get away from your friends. I hadn't told my mom either, but she just knew I was devastated because I was crying all night in my room. And she just said, "Go to school. And just take your finals and get out." And so I go into my English class, and um, it, it was my English final before Christmas break. And kind of what we had been doing all semester was a creative writing kind of exercise. And so my final was a creative writing essay. All received prompts that were at random, they just pass them out. And when I received my prompt, the prompt was, Who has influenced your life? And being in the lowest state that I had been in ever, and probably a dramatic 17 year old, um, I was like, Satan, <laughs> who has influenced my life? At this point, I don't see any light. I think it's been the enemy. Like everything that I, the little theological knowledge that I knew or that I pertained, I was like, I, I think Satan has influenced my life. Um, and so I just started to imagine this picture of me walking through a dark forest. And I started to write this creative writing prompt, really having no idea where I was going. So I write this prompt and just like kind of external, it's like a spiritual thing. Like I was just externally processing kind of through this creative writing prompt of me walking through a dark forest and hearing these whispers of all these lies that I just believed my whole life that dug me deeper and deeper and deeper into that hole. So in the essay, I got to a point where I was laying on my face, um, just couldn't get up, was trying to find my way out of the wilderness, and I couldn't get up. And my English teacher said to me, you have 15 minutes left, like, the whole class, you have 15 minutes left, you need a conclusion. And I just said, what's my conclusion? Just popped in my head, what's my conclusion? And right when I said that, I felt like the manifest presence of God come and all I heard was a voice that just said me. And I just knew it was the Lord, risen Lord Jesus Christ, speaking into my soul, saying, I'm your solution. You know, I'm the answer. And as I heard that, the, you know, if you've ever been depressed before, or anything, it's, it can be physical. Mine was very physical. And I felt a physical, like, it was like a weighted vest flew off of my back when I heard the words me. And I just wept in the room. I just wept under the presence of God. And I, I didn't know what was happening for me in me. I didn't know, didn't have a theology or a grid for it. But I knew that I was delivered from something. That something had come off of my life and that freedom and hope and joy and um, all the stuff that entered in from Jesus. And I just felt like the Holy Spirit, I didn't know that I could hear from God, but I just felt the Holy Spirit say, pick up your pen and have a conclusion. And so I was like, oh, I got 15 minutes. So what's my conclusion, you know? 
and I start writing, and I just, this beautiful image of me, like, you know, basically, like, in this shame hole, and looking up because I see a light. When I saw the light, the light vanished. But beside me was, what I said was a familiar book, which was the Bible. When I opened it, engraved in gold was this letter to me from God. And as I'm writing, I'm not just being mad at care and shameless at this point. Um, I'm just weeping, and, and I don't know, I have no scripture, but it was like just scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture of who I was in God. And I put down my pen, and I was truly just never the same. Like, I just left my life of sin. I was delivered in a way that I could not have gotten on my own. Even for, like, the whole year kind of leading up to that, I have had these tugs, like, once to give my life to Jesus, but just feeling, like, so covered in shame and in chains. And I just felt him say, like, in that moment, he, he freed me of who I thought that I was and showed me a who I really and so I just got crazy about Jesus. I became the girl that was like, I gotta know who this is. I thought, I didn't realize that he was actually alive. I didn't realize that he talked to us. I didn't realize that he interacted with us. I didn't realize that he freed us from our oppression. Um, and so I became just wild about Jesus. And and I, and I want to say all of that because that was, you know, 14 years ago. So I've been on the journey. I've been being spiritually formed by God as I've walking with him in intimacy and with the spirit and with the scriptures. Um, but he has changed me, like completely changed me. When I look back now, it feels like a totally different person. Um, and I just want to say that and testify tonight to just say, it doesn't matter what you did yesterday, you know? It doesn't matter what you did today. That Jesus is a redeemer and he is like an absolute freedom like bomb, you know, he can just come to you and free you of what you cannot free yourself from. And so tonight, we, we really are talking about the fear of the Lord, and I even feel like that experience for me was an experience with the risen God, like who he really is, which in response to that is to come into reverence, into awe, into wonder, and to walk into deep relationship with him. And so kind of my, my burning question for us tonight is just how can we participate in Jesus coming to our lives with his presence that renews and transforms us? Like, just like in my story, how can we participate in that? Like, if that is what he does, we want to do that. We want to, be, we want to take steps towards him and be in a relationship with him. And so I just want to talk about what is the fear of the Lord and what is it not? Um, I think that the fear of the Lord in my own experience of deliverance, like it just took me to this place of wanting to do a deep word study around what is the fear of the Lord. And these two seemingly paradoxical words in the scriptures um, are often connected together. And so we're going to talk about both fear and love. Um, because there is holy fear, and then there is fear that is terror and anxiety and things that we face in life. And so I would clarify who, who is God when we're talking about the fear of the Lord and entering into his holiness, entering into his goodness. And now, as we talk, uh, it's deeply connected to love. It's deeply connected to him being love. And so we're going to talk tonight about two different scriptures. Um, you guys can open up or you can just not. <laughs> Whatever you want to do. Um, so context really matters. We're going to like kind of do a Bible study. This is almost going to be more like Bible study style. Formal teaching. So feel free to take notes if you want to put things up. 
but we're going to dive into really what do the scriptures say about this. <clears throat> so first is that context really matters. Um, there's two contrasting words of fear in the scriptures. There is phobos, which is going to be like alarm, terror, fright, anxiety, all these things. And then there's a second one, phobotheomen, and we'll get there, but that one is fear-oriented around God as the subject. He is the subject. He is the one who sent And so the first passage that we're going to look at is 1 John 4, 18. 1 John 4, 18. Fear in this passage is the phobos, the first one, um, the subject, when fear becomes the center. You know, I don't know if any of you guys have ever had anxiety before. I had a, a really terrible anxiety season at one point in my life that was just full of panic. I had to go through lots of counseling and all things. But in that season, I really, and it was a season of healing. God was delivering me from things um, again, but I was just, it it had to kind of come out in a messy way. You know what I mean? We've all been there, and I get it again. But this is where, like, fear is the subject. Like, when fear becomes the center, and it creates anxiety and panic and all these things that we struggle with, um, that is not the fear of the Lord. We want to clarify that. First uh, John four eighteen says, "There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear includes punishment. And the one who is afraid, um, the one who is afraid, has not been perfected in love." So this is what the Greek means when you really break down the real meaning of this verse. I want to read it to you because this is so good. When I was breaking it down, if you really look at the root words in each one of these words, this is sort of the depth version of what this verse is. Mature and completely good love violently casts out and makes strange or foreign fear. So like, literally, can you imagine being like foreign to fear? You know, that is what he's saying. Um, That is often, fear that is often accusative. So who is the accuser in the scriptures? The accuser is an enemy. So he, he casts out, violently casts out and makes or foreign fear that is accusing or creates alarm or worry. And so I'm going to read this scripture one more time. There is no fear, there is no phobos, none of this exists in love. But perfect love, who is Jesus, drives out fear because fear includes punishment. But the one who is afraid has not been perfected in love. The fear of God is not intimidation. So if you ever approached God and you felt just really intimidated, that's not the fear of the Lord. Um, the fear of the Lord is not low self-esteem, like devaluing yourself because in the name of like, God's so great and I'm really crappy, you know, that's actually not the fear of the Lord either. Um, the fear of the Lord is not um, accusative. If you ever have gotten into the presence of God or tried to read scripture, or to pray, and you just feel all this accusation. That is not the Lord coming to convict you. The Holy Spirit, anytime I've ever been convicted by the Holy Spirit, it is in like His kindness. It's almost like, oh, that like speaks and it's so good. Like it feels really good. I feel you drawing me into yourself. I feel like you're you're pulling me into purity, into holiness. It feels good, it feels right, and holy and, and who he is. And so when you feel, if you've ever felt any of those things, I mean, you can really look to the scriptures and know um, that the accuser of the enemy is the one. He's the accuser of the brethren. And so when God comes in in fear, it's not going to be with these things. 
Because perfect love drives out fear. If fear is the subject and the center of the circumstance, then we know his answer is that love, he comes to drive out. He is perfect love. Okay, so then phobo theomen. You don't have to write that down because it's too long. Um, but phobo theomen, this is fear. You can even hear it in the word. Um, fear that is oriented around God as the subject. So if God is the subject and fear is the response to the subject, then that is the fear of God. So theo means God. Like, so it literally, phobo theomen, it means the fear of God, literally, in the Greek. Um, so Proverbs, this is the other one we're going to talk about, Proverbs 9, verses 10. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And in the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So I'm going to read it one more time. <clears throat> Sorry. Also, if anyone has a water bottle, I've been losing my voice the last couple days. Thanks, Angel. I keep, like, coughing, but I'm not that extra. Um, so the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So look at the passage. I want us to just really break down this passage. Who is it that we are fearing? Who is the Lord? As a subject in the passage. Okay, so anyone see what his name is in the passage besides Lord? Oh, awesome. The Holy One. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, so the knowledge, knowledge of the Holy One is inside. Fear of the Lord in the way that you would you would want us to posture ourselves. 
And so the first one is the fearing, fearing the Lord is reverence. And so this is what we've been talking about. Reverence, holy awe, wonder, um, respect, deep respect in like your soul for who God is. It's revering him as he is. And the second one is this. Fearing the Lord is the beginning of something. Like think about that for a second. I love this in this passage. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. I don't know. I just was, I was meditating on that, and, and I just saw here. I was like, okay, so what does beginning mean? Beginning means the opening of something, the commencement, the start. And so I just want to say, wherever you are tonight, like if the women at CSF are saying we want to fear the Lord together, like this is the beginning of something. It connotates that something comes next. It connotates that we're going somewhere together. This isn't just like a choice, okay, we're fearing God, there's a choice that I made. Um, no, it's not a one-time choice to say, I fear you, God. It's the beginning of knowing. So even in that passage, go back, it says, um, and knowledge, knowing, of the Holy One is insights. You know, knowing Him. That, that, that fearing the Lord is the beginning of knowing Him. Like, I don't know how else to say it, but I feel like if we miss, if we just jump straight in to fearing God being behavior modification and holy codes, like we totally miss it. We just totally miss it. Because holy love and encounter with Jesus is what transforms us. Holy love and the truth of who he is and being magnified to us, whether it's in the scriptures or by the spirit, that that, that that place of encounter with God, that's what transforms us as he speaks to us through the scriptures, through prayer, through our friends, um, through words, through pictures, through any of the things, any of the ways that he personally speaks to you. It is in the place of encounter, true, the true essence of God, not the theory, you know, not the idea of who he is, but his holy love, himself as holy love. I capitalize him, holy and love as a person, you know, like... It's encountering him and finding him that we, that our the only response is like loving reverence and a desire for more and to be changed. It's not about behavior modification. It's about our hearts being changed by a loving God. We encounter like my life before Jesus, that you guys heard, I could not liberate myself out of this. I tried for many years to stop making the bad decisions that I was making. And to stop saying yes to the things that I didn't want to say yes to. It was his, like, encountering Jesus that transformed me and gave me liberation and power from the Spirit to, to be free and to walk in a lifestyle of freedom. And so it really isn't about holy codes or about rules or about behavior modification, but first we have to encounter him. Like, if tonight and the next several gatherings that you guys have are just about encountering him, then, like, the only response would be holy awe and reverence and holy love and, and life transformation. And so we're going to, we're going to, I just want to do a little, little exercise, and then I'm going to preach two more minutes, not really two more minutes, just a couple more minutes. But, um, but I have this thing that came to mind, and I was like, I just got to talk about this. But, um, okay, I'm going to do a little exercise. I want you to close your eyes real quick. And I'm going to read this quote from A.W. Tozer. It's one of my favorite quotes. It says, What comes into your mind when you think about God is the 
just support the same value. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So really let that sink in for a second. Keep your eyes closed. The most important thing about you when you think about God, or the, yeah, the most important thing about you is what you think about God. So what do you think? When you think of him right now, what do you think? What are your thoughts? How do you picture him? What's his emotions towards you? What's your posture towards him? Do you find yourself coming, wanting to come close or push away or be afraid? Yeah, just where do you find your soul? Okay, so with that picture or emotions or posture that you find yourself in, if the most important thing about beginning to fear the Lord is what he thinks, what you think about him, then I think it connotates too, like, what does he think about you? You know, how can you um, enter into the fear of the Lord if you have maybe preconceived notions of his perspective of you based on your life or your circumstances or your decisions? And so as I was studying this, and just honestly, as I was praying today, this question popped into my mind, and I feel like maybe it's the beginning for us. Like, if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of I think the beginning for us is this. this be, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and pull this through this, but I think it's really important. This is gonna feel like a hard left turn, but I really feel like it's going on the same. Are Christians in the New Testament primarily addressed as sinners, or are they addressed as saints? And I think that where we're going with this is that if we fear the Lord, we have to see ourselves rightly. Like, if there are barriers to getting to him because we are not seeing ourselves as he sees us, then that's such a bummer because he's given everything to come close to you. And sometimes we do that through our decision-making, through our shame. We don't have like, the right perspective of what he says in scriptures about us. And so first, I just wanted to find saints. You might be like, are we talking about Catholic saints that were venerated because of their heroic faith and their connection to Jesus? Um, I'm not talking about that, although I do love the saints. Um, I think saints in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, is a common term for the believers. It's like all over the New Testament. In fact, there's over 50 references. So in the New Testament, there's over 50 references to the term saint, just as an identity word, and we'll talk about that. Over 50 references in the New Testament to saint, and uh, that only begins at the book of Romans. So the Gospels, you know, the time of Jesus, Acts, which is the Acts of the Apostles, and then the rest of the New Testament, so starting there in Romans, there's over 50 references to the term saint. And there's two ways of saints to use, I'm going to look through this. Saint as our name, Paul frequently addresses the believers as saints. It's our, our identity. He says things to, like this. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called saints. To the saints who are in Ephesus. He uses this word all the time. Saint means the holy ones. You know, the set-apart ones unto God. That's what, that's what the identity is that God's constantly speaking out over his people through the scriptures and through the apostles. And then second is saints is our standing in Christ as his redeemed community. 
Colossians 1.26 says, The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but is now revealed to his saints. His saints, meaning Jesus has made us his, that our standing before him is his. That's what he says about us. He says that we are his. In the New Testament, it emphasizes that we're set apart and holy in nature as a Christian community. Like that is who we are. Who you guys are on this campus is set apart and holy in the nature of God. Like that is who you are now as a community of believers on this campus and to this campus. And so I want I just want to say to be a saint is to fear God because of your new identity and because your standing is secure in Christ. Like who you are in Christ is secure because of what he's done. And then center, so this is going to get really So I, when I did this word study, I was like John Brown looking this stuff up today. Um, so center, you know, we kind of all know this term. We're probably pretty familiar uh, in the Bible Belt. But center means missing the mark. Sin just means missing the mark. Romans 3.23 says, For all of sin is all short of the glory of God. Sinner um, is a title for all of us who fall short of God's perfect standard. Simply what it is. So this is really interesting. In those first five books that I was talking about, where saint isn't yet mentioned because we don't have an identity as a church yet. In the narratives, so there's 28 times. I said over 50 saint, or over 50 references for saint. There's 28 times that it's meant, that sinner is mentioned in the New Testament. But get this: 16 are in the Gospels and Acts, and they're used in context to highlight the condition of our fallen nature. So, like, when Jesus is hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, you know, he's, he's highlighting the fallen nature of, of who we are or whatever. He eats with them, though. This is what Jesus does. He eats with sinners and tax collectors. He tells many parables referring to sinners as those who, those who heaven rejoices when they're repentant. So it's like even the context in which he talks about us as sinners, he calls sinners to be his disciples. And when Jesus interacts with people who are considered sinners, his tone and approach varies on this context, but his words are to highlight our condition and need for redemption. And he's calling out sinners. He's, he's saying, hey, this is how it was, but come, you know, come to me, repent and believe the good news. That's his message. And so while he's saying, while, while he did address people's sins, absolutely, and I will get there too, um, he was intent on typically offering guidance, forgiveness, invitation, repentance, rather than to pain or insult. And so how often we are caught in our sin, do we identify with that sin so strongly that we're like stuck in it as our identity, you know, what we did and what we've done, and that we, in fact, typically demean or insult ourselves, you know, in the way that Jesus does not. He would eat with tax collectors and sinners. He's not afraid of our sin. He conquered it. Um, it's a sinner in context, you know, like I said, uh, 50 times for saying 12 references in that same window, 12 references from Romans till the end of the New Testament. But listen to this, only three references from Romans to the end of the New Testament. Three. Like, deep, deep dive study on this four hours. You guys, I don't know what I was doing. But I was just like, God's talking right now. So three of the references use the term sinner in the identity context. And these are the three. Listen to them. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is, this is talking about our condition of sinners. 
First Timothy 1.15 says, Christ came to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So Christ, or so Timothy saying, or Paul saying to Timothy, that Christ came to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Sinner is an identity with our need. Like he's highlighting the need. Like the need for Jesus, the need for more of him. And then the other one is James 4, and he says, cleanse your, you, cleanse your hands, you sinners. And if you read in the context, it's the Christians here being called out for their specific sin in the congregation. He's saying, hey, this is not right. So cleanse your hands, you know, you sinners. Three times, guys. Like, please let this sink in. This was blowing my mind today. The Bible acknowledges the sinful nature of humanity, no doubt, and a need for repentance. But it is overwhelmingly emphasizing the transformative work of Christ for those who believe. Like, that is what Scripture says. If you look at the New Testament here and study it out, do not take my words. Like, I, I want to challenge you, study it out. But I was so blown away. Like, the overarching narrative of the New Testament is that God, like, in his overwhelming love, is emphasizing that he has defeated this. That, he, that you are a saint in God. That he has the transformative work by the power of the Holy Spirit in a process of sanctification. He is cleansing you. That is how he sees you. That is what he thinks about you. And I'm not saying that we do not have sin. Like, we're not saying. First uh, John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We have to be aware. Like, we're in this transformative work. It's not an instant work. Transformative work. Um, but God, this is what he's saying. He's saying, um, behold, I am making all things new. That is who Jesus is. He's saying, behold, I am making all things He's okay. He's, he's actually chosen. Jesus has chosen a process. So, like, if you sinned today, Jesus is aware, you know? Like, he doesn't, he's not like, oh, what are they doing? Like, he's aware, and he's okay with the process. He's actually chosen a sanctification process instead of just instantly healing you sin right now, which is amazing because it means that he has grace for us today, and that it doesn't change. He doesn't, like, tilt off his throne and change his perspective of you because he's He's constantly calling us to repentance. Like he's constantly calling us back to that holy presence of God. And so I just want to say this. For the three times that early church leaders wrote the New Testament, that we were to acknowledge our condition as sinners, that there's over 50 times where they proclaim with great joy that we're saints, that you, women of God, saints of God, have been cleansed and made pure and holy, I love this. He says in Ephesians 1, just like let this rest over you. You may know what is the hope that he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those who believe? Yeah, and I just, I just want to say, if you are a Christian, and you are desiring to live a repentant life, just day by day. You're like, I want to be cleansed. I want to be close to you, Jesus. That you're laying down your idols. And, and listen, we all have them. There's going to be moments in your life where you're like, oh, I didn't even realize that idol was there. I need to like lay that down. That's part of spiritual formation. That's part of walking in relationship to Jesus. But if you are living and desiring to live a repentant life, if you're laying down your idols and living in a confession community, 
and a professor in community. Do you identify more deeply with an identity label for yourself that the New Testament is not? You know? When you think about God, do you feel ashamed? Do you distance yourself in fear? We are ordinary people. You know, we are ordinary. He is not. He's holy. We said that. We revere him. We fear. We phobotheos God. We fear him because he is holy. And we are ordinary, but we're his. You know, we're saints. This is what the scriptures overwhelmingly say. We are the set apart ones in a culture and on this campus that looks vastly different because we have him, because of what he's given to us. And so he is holy, and we do fear God because of who he is as God. Because of the transformative work he's done in each of our lives, we fear him. But we also fear him because of the great expanse that he has totally closed, completely closed, completely closed, because he calls us saints, holy ones, set apart ones, just like he calls himself, that's what he calls you. No matter what you did this week, no matter what you did today, no matter your pride or your arrogance, or your self-nature. He has completely closed the great expanse to call you a saint. And that's why he went around just proclaiming, repent and believe the good news. This is the good news. Like Jesus died so that we could live while we were still sinners. Not, you know, when we got better. Not when we like behavior modified. Like while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is who he is and that is the gospel. And so I just want to lay a foundation for us tonight. And I want to invite Mary or whoever's leading afterwards to come up. But I just want to lay a foundation that the most important thing about us, like this is what Ada Winter said, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. The most important thing about us that as women together in this community, when we get into the scriptures together this uh, fall semester, that it wouldn't be about a religious ritual, but it would be by, about being transformed by the person of Jesus. It would be becoming just a little bit more aware that we are saints of God, that he has totally cleansed us, totally reconciled us, and that he is making all things new. I love the IMG there. He's making. He didn't just instantly make all this. He's making all things new. He's okay with the process of the church redeeming the world through him. He has grace for you today. So I kind of want us to just close our eyes for a second. And I'm going to read this last scripture over you. And I think, honestly, as I was praying, you know, how we close, I just feel like we're supposed to just receive from him, receive mercy from him. To align our eyes and our hearts in our spirit, in our soul, our body, to align it with the truth that is in the scriptures. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, So the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. That is a posture of extension, like a hand extended constantly. So Lord, we do just acknowledge that 
you are, like your eyes are looking for those whose hearts are fully committed. Jesus, this semester, would you make us people who are fully committed? Yeah, Jesus, we just say thank you for being the one that came close. Thank you for becoming the incarnate God who came close to us. You loved us first, Jesus. You reached out towards us first. You called us saints. You are perfecting your love in us and driving out fear. And Jesus, one day we really will mercifully be embracing you you. I'm so grateful, Jesus. Yeah, we want our song to be tonight. Jesus, we thank you for your love. We thank you that um, we can have exchanges with you all day long. That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is inside of you. Long, I pray, Holy Spirit, you just pour out your holy insight over these women this semester. Will they hear your voice in ways that they never have before? 
We know your word deeper than the ocean, God. Would you just pour out of it? Transform our minds. Pour out your love. Jesus' name.